seated. Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors of Seven Mile Road. If I don't know you, uh, I spend most of my time down in Malden leading that church, pastoring that church, and uh, it's a great joy every time I get to come up here and and preach to this crowd. So it's fun. Um, Today we're going to be talking about judgment. We're going to be talking about the day of judgment. If you guys were able to see uh, a future reality, you guys know that it would change your present actions, right? It would. If you guys were able to see uh, the result of, of something before it came, you, bet, you better believe that it would change how you make your decisions now, right? Um, to make this plain, uh, have you guys ever been pulled over before? No one's been pulled over before. Okay. You guys are all lying. Uh, you, you guys have been pulled over before, right? Um, I have admittedly more than I should have been. Uh, and you guys know how this works, right? So you're driving through a city, minding your own business always, right? Doing what's right. Minding your own business, driving through the city, enjoying the scenery, enjoying the great day, having great conversation. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere pulls out a cop like behind a rock or some crevice under the road they just come out and lights flash and you realize oh shoot you pull over to the side you roll down the uh push the button (laughs) whatever how whatever cars you guys have push the button uh the officer comes to the side and says license and registration please and then you guys know the question they ask right after that sir do you know why i've pulled you over today I don't know why they ask that, but they always ask that. And we always pull the, I have no idea, sir. I have no clue why you would pull me over on this fine evening. Um, why don't you tell me? And we, we go through that route. Right? Well, um, I had that experience recently, again, uh, as I was going down to Long Island back, back in the summer. Before I get there, I need you to guys to know something about me. Um, I am what they call a reckless driver. Um, I had my license suspended from the state of Illinois um, because they deemed me to be a dangerous hazard to its citizens. Right? So they took away my license. Uh, I was a young, young lad. Uh, I still am. So they took it away, and um, uh, when they gave it back to me, I still didn't learn my lesson. So violation after violation after citation after citation it just piled up, and I became broke. So in 2008, I finally came to my senses. I realized that this was a very expensive sin. <laughs> so from 2008 to now, for about four years, I was doing great. I was abiding by the rules of the road to the glory of God, and I was doing it great until the summer. The summer, we were going down to Long Island to visit my in-laws who lived down there. And I was driving down I-90, and, you know, it was a nice day. I was having a great conversation with Caroline next to me, uh, enjoying the breeze. <laughs> I don't even have a convertible. I don't know how I'm going to enjoy the breeze. So I was enjoying the nice day, and uh, out of nowhere, a police officer comes behind me, and I see lights behind me. He pulls me over. I roll over to the, the side of the road. Uh, I pushed the button to let the window down. And he comes to the side of the window and he says, license and registration, please. And he asked me the question, 
Sir, do you know why I pulled you over this evening? And being uh, a faithful um, servant of Jesus, I cannot tell a lie. So I said, yes, I do know, sir. Uh, I was probably speeding. And he said, yes, you were right. You're speeding. So I'm going to need your uh, information. I'm going to take it back and we're going to process this. I was sitting there looking straight ahead. I did not want to look over here. My wife was sitting here, two eyes, peered straight at me because all the while we were driving down I-90, she was saying, Dan, you should slow down a little bit. You're going a little bit too fast. Please slow down. And I just had this mindset that I was getting to where I needed to go. You see, from 2008 to 2009, I was doing really well. Or 2008 to 2012, I was doing really well. I would go a month without a ticket, and I felt really good about myself. I went three months without a ticket, I felt really good about myself. I would go years without a ticket, I felt really great. But slowly and surely, I would be driving down these roads, and I realized, man, everyone's just going a little bit faster than me, right? Just passing me by. And none of them are getting pulled over. Hmm, interesting. And I moved to the Massachusetts. I don't know if you guys really, like, see this. Um, I'm from Illinois, and there's cops, like, at every corner, on the road, ready to give you a speeding ticket. Massachusetts, I, I, I see that there are more people, more cops, um, you know, manning potholes and, and manning, you know, construction sites than there are actually on the road giving traffic violations. So I was like, hmm, interesting. Everyone seems to be running red lights. Everyone seems to be speeding a little bit faster than I am. Everyone seems to be passing illegally on a two-lane highway. Hmm, I remember what that felt like. Remember what that was like? They got to their destinations real quickly. They got to kick their feet up 10 minutes early. You know, all that. So I, sitting there, looking straight ahead, two eyes piercing at me. I was just, man, I just need to get out of this. Please, first, just give me a warning. And by a miraculous turn of events, he comes by. I roll down my window and he says, here's your warning. Please don't do that again. So I keep going. Do you guys know how fast I drove after that? If the speed limit said 55, I put my cruise control on 54 just to make sure I wasn't going too slow or too fast. I was going at the limit. Seeing the reality of my speeding changed how I, I drove. And so that's the reality we come to in our passage today. Malachi and his people are looking at all the other people in their lives, in the, in the, even within the covenant people, and saying, hmm, these guys are getting away with everything. This person is prospering, and I'm not. Interesting. Maybe I should join that team. And so, we get a glimpse of how Malachi's people are, are processing the future realities presently. And what Malachi's people are hearing from the voice of the prophet Malachi is God, in his grace, revealing to them their future judgment. The day that is absolutely and certainly coming in order that he might call his people to repentance, to present day worship. You heard that right. We're talking about the judgment day, the day of wrath, the day that Jesus will come to judge all people of every, all peoples of every age. That's happening. I know for some of you guys, you just heard, wah, 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 right? No one talks about the judgment day. 
What do we, you know, we're not supposed to talk about the judgment. That's a part of the scripture that we kind of try to avoid and push to the side because we don't want to talk about the judgment day. That's, that's for, you know, evil religious institutions that want to put fear into their people and keep them obeying their rules. We don't want to be talking about that. That's old school stuff, right? But in this passage, hopefully in this room, we have a people that believe God's word to be true. I hope that we have a people that know that his scripture, when he says something, that it will come to pass. So I'm hoping that today, that when he says that there is a day coming, that we would believe it. That when he says there is a day when he will judge, that we would believe it. And in this day, he will make his justice known, and he will make all things right. Now, to get our context a little bit in, in Malachi, if you guys haven't been following with, following with us or tracking with us, um, there, these people, the people of Malachi's day, the, the post-exilic Israelites who have come out of exile back into the land, back into temple worship. They had heard all the stories of previous generations and how God was just in those previous generations. How God had acted on behalf of Israel to vindicate them from all the enemies that were against them. But in their day, they never saw any of it. They didn't witness it. They had only heard stories. In their day, in their day, They saw their crops failing. They saw their health diminishing. They began to experience more suffering and hardship. They didn't see the prosperity or the wealth that was promised to them from days of old. When they saw, what made made all this worse was when they saw evildoers, arrogant, those that don't fear God, those that half-heartedly worship God or corruptively worship God, get away with it all, and not only get away with it all, but actually prosper, they ask themselves the question, how could God do this? I thought God was just. I've, I've heard that God was just, but he's letting all these people slide. He's actually not only letting them slide, but he's prospering them. How can God do this? Where is God? Maybe, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. Maybe my worship is in vain. Maybe my covenant keeping is all in vain because it seems like they're doing better than me. And that's been the mantra of the people in, in Malachi's day for three and a half chapters now, right? We've seen the realities of this, this thought process work itself out. This belief work itself out as people are, are worshiping God with half-hearted, corruptive worship that they're uh, divorcing their wives, marrying prostitutes, marrying daughters of foreign gods, that they are uh, stingy in their giving, uh, giving minimally and spending extravagantly on themselves. And that we've seen how all of this works out. And so it's to this part that we get where God is speaking and declaring that he will come in justice to make all these, th- all these things right again. He will come on that day in judgment, against the wicked, and for the righteous. So this coming day will be feared by some, and rightly so, but will be a great joy for others. So before we get into it, let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would go forth, not return void. God, we pray that 
as your word declares that you will come on that day in perfect judgment and justice. That you would give us hope amidst this dark and evil world. God, I pray that your word would give strength to the strengthless and give hope to the hopeless today. Do it for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. There are two conversations going on here. Uh, God is making two distinctions here. Uh, The first conversation is between the disillusioned people of God, the discontented people of God. They're talking amongst each other, talking to one another, and notice they're not talking to God. But God still hears them, right? He hears them enough to be able to repeat back to them what he heard. And so these people are talking to one another. What are they saying? They're saying, they're agreeing with one another, hey, seems like our worship is in vain, right? And the other person agrees, yeah, our worship is in vain. These evildoers are getting away with evil. These uh, uh, arrogant are prospering. But where's God? And what made this worse was seeing the people that were doing these things, not fearing God, getting further along than they were. So if, if God lets these people go, then I should just join that team. Maybe I'm the foolish one thinking that keeping covenant is, is glorifying to God. Maybe God is evil. What, do you guys really see how when they ask these sorts of questions, what they really have in mind is how they're going to gain. What they really have in mind is what's at the end of the road for them as far as profit, as far as in return on investment. And so, they keep asking the question, what course of actions do I need to take in order for me to have prosperity or gain or profit? If the evildoers are doing the right thing, let me go and do that. They were treating God like a vending machine, right? Worship on the altar, prosperity back into my life. They didn't see their crops increasing. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. They didn't see their health strengthening. They began to question if it was all worth it. And for them, it was about the gifts rather than the giver. It was about the return on their investment. On the other hand, we had a different group of people. Finally, a group of people that were faithful and fearing God. When we had lost all hope, as we read through Malachi, we preached through Malachi, we thought every person in Malachi's day was bound to hell and punishment. We see that there is a small group of people that fear God, and we're talking to one another. And we hear again that God is in their midst, hearing their conversation. Malachi doesn't record what the conversation was about, um, but we do know that God is in the midst of it, hearing it. And not only that, he takes note. He's not taking note because he's learning something new, but he's taking note because he wants to remember something. It's called the Book of Remembrance. He wants to take note because he wants to remember something. He does not want to forget to act on whatever he's writing down. And I think verse 17 gives us a window into what is happening. Verse 17 says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up uh, my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves me. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Whatever God wrote down, it was along 
these lines. God was remembering his treasured possession so that when he comes back on that day, that he can take them up, remember them, act on their behalf, be just towards them. God writes down things in his scriptures a few times. We call this anthropomorphic language, right? When you attribute a human action to a non-human. And when he does this, we would be right to open our eyes and to take note. He does it twice. Um, he does it twice when he writes the original law of the old covenant. He writes in stone with his finger the law of God. And we all know how he felt about the law that he wanted that to be uh, to be true and to be understood. He does it a second time when he writes the second law, the new covenant. He says he will write the law on the hearts of men so that we could be his people, that he could be our God. When he does this, he means for these things to come to pass. When he does this, it would be right for us to take note because he is serious about whatever he's writing down. And so in this passage, he's making sure that he remembers his, his treasured possession, that he remembers to act justly on our behalf. God is making distinctions here. There's two groups, right? Two conversations going on. God is in the midst of both, both conversations. God is hearing both conversations. He speaks in both conversations. And Malachi will get to how he's going to make those distinctions later on. But right now, what he's doing is showing us why He's making those distinctions. Why it's important that he's making those distinctions. Um, He's saying that there's two camps. The wicked and the righteous. Those that do not fear God. Those that fear God. Those that do not serve him and those that serve him. And obviously we all know those that are disillusioned. Those that are discontent. Those that are saying that worship is in vain. Is saying, or they're the ones that are not serving him. They're the ones that are wicked. They're the ones that do not fear him. And it's this disillusioned people that are making a loud racket that they're not profiting from their worship. In the New Testament, there's a a, a beautiful story that Jesus tells that really just pictures this whole thing. Luke 15, you guys know the parable of the prodigal son. You guys know that parable, hopefully you've heard it, uh, it's, a, it's a parable of, of two sons. One, the prodigal that we all remember who was given the father's inheritance and he takes it and goes far off, spends it lavishly on his own fleshly desires and comes away with nothing. And then at a, at a moment of desperation, he hires himself out and works. And all the while, he's, he's longing to be back home with the father, remembering how his father provided for his every need. We always remember that younger son. But we, sometimes we forget about the older son. Right? The older son got an inheritance too. He got an inheritance, but he didn't go anywhere. He stayed in the father's home. He worked for the father. And the story goes where the, the younger son comes to repent, comes to turn and desires to be back home. So he comes along the road to be back home. And the father sees him and runs and meets him. And this hired hand, the younger son, stopped on the road The father meets him, and the father, right then and there, restores this hired hand as his son. and says, come on in. I'm going to throw a party for you. The biggest party that only a son would deserve. 
And then the elder brother comes out from, from his, the farm, from the work. He's coming down to, towards the house. He hears the music blasting and, and he hears the party and he stops in his tracks and he doesn't enter the house. And he says, what's going on? Well, the servants tell him, well, they're throwing a party for your younger brother who's returned. And this older brother stands right there outside the house. And you guys know the father came out of the house again to talk to the older brother. Do you guys remember what the older brother said back to the father when he said, why aren't you coming in? The older brother says, look, these many years I've served you. For these many years, I have never disobeyed your command. But you never gave me a young goat. You, you never gave me anything. You never let me celebrate with my friends. But when, you're, when my younger brother, when your son comes back, and he's the one that has spent all your property on prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him? You guys hear it in there, right? This is just like how the disillusioned people of Malachi's day treated God. They looked at the Father, they looked at God and said, God, I've never disobeyed any of your commands. I did whatever was right, but I demand more than this. I, I demand more than this. I deserve more than this. And with that, it becomes clear who the Son is and who the hired hand is. Right? This elder brother is more a hired hand than a son because he realizes that his work results in compensation. And the younger brother, who used to be the hired hand, is more a son than the hired hand because he realizes, even though he has absolutely nothing, he is now in the father's house celebrating with his family. And that is far better than being outside the house with every worldly good. So the people of Malachi's day were to hear this that Jesus or that God says that on that day he will spare those who fear the Lord as a man spares his son. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is that the wicked will serve God as hired hands. The righteous will serve God as sons. Why does God make this distinction? Because the gospel makes this distinction, right? Our Heavenly Father makes us sons of God through Jesus Christ. And the, if we believe the gospel, we would serve God as sons because our Father provides generously for us our every need. We don't need to earn or work for anything. But when we don't believe the gospel, we have to rely on ourselves to generate our own profit, our own prosperity. Then, then God describes how he's going to uh, make this distinction starting in chapter 4. Right? I want to be crystal clear this morning. There are two, two camps, right? two types of people, two realities here that all human beings in every age will come to face. One should be greatly feared and one should, be, should cause great joy. Right? Malachi makes it clear starting in verse 1 to 3. First, Malachi makes it clear... That there is a day that is coming. Right? Now, this is, is this a single day 
Is this a comprehensive reality that's just called a day? Is this a series of days that, you know, they sum it up as a day? We don't know. But the big idea is that there is a day that is coming. And it's with certainty. With so much certainty that God repeats himself twice in the scriptures. If God repeats himself, you know you need to pay attention. You know he means business. And so in the beginning he says, behold, the day is coming. And then right after, in the same verse, he says, the day is coming. He repeats himself. It is a certain reality that's happening. And on this day, God is describing that he is going to come as an intense fire. To the wicked, he's going to come as an intense fire, like a burning oven. To the righteous, he's going to come as an intense fire, like the sun. All right, let's unpack this. So, verse 1 and 3. It says that God... It's coming as a burning fire like an oven. And all the arrogant, all the evildoers, all the people that do not believe in the promises of God, do not fear him, will be made to stubble. Wow. When you guys hear stubble, you should be thinking firewood, right? When you make fire, what, do you guys, what kind of wood do you use? You don't use live or wet wood. You use dry and dead wood. Right, you put it all together, you, you light the fire, and as you light the fire, it consumes all the wood, and what's left? The ashes. And what do you do with the ashes? You put it out by stomping all over it. That's the picture that, that God is displaying and portraying for his people. Those that are arrogant and those that are evildoers will be made to stubble in the heat of that judgment day. And their rebellion... And their lack of fear of God, their disbelief in the promises of God will be made known to be what it is. Absolutely worthless, insignificant, just like dust and ashes. And on top of that, God says he will leave neither root nor branch. He will cut them off. No connection at all. And you guys know if you're a plant, you have no root, you have no branch, you have no life. Now, before our sophisticated intellectual minds start refuting this and saying, man, what is this guy talking about? Because the God I know is a God of love. He's supposed to be compassionate. He's supposed to be kind. He, he wouldn't do what he just said. No way. God is love. Yeah, God is love. I assure you, God is love. And in God's loving creation of his people and his creation, he has made it clear what will bring the greatest joy for his people and what would rob them of that greatest joy? And so, when his creation sins and, and is robbed of that joy that they are supposed to experience, would it be loving for God to just let it slide? Would it be loving for him to just let it go? No. It would be loving for God to turn you to say, you are being robbed of the joy that I want you to know. And I want you to know and experience the greatest joy that I've designed for you. And that's what he's doing here. His desire is to call these people, the post-exilic Israelites, and us here. As we see the judgment day coming and looming, his desire is to call you to repentance so that you can turn from your sin that is robbing you of joy and turn to uh, what is going to cause you great joy. Return to me, 
and I will return to you. Right? We've heard that at the beginning of chapter 3. It's not just uh, a spiteful vengeance of God for vengeance sake. That fear you might be fear, uh, f- feeling, if you're thinking about the judgment day coming, that's not fear for fear's sake. That's a, hopefully a conviction by the Spirit for you to return to him and go to where there is life. Now, if you're in the room and you believe in the gospel and the power of God to save, we have a totally different reaction to these verses, and we should. There should be a totally different view of it. And all of this would have been good news, great news for the people of Malachi's day. When they would look out among themselves and see evildoers escaping judgment and er the arrogant prospering, they would have been like, finally, God is going to come and make all things right. When you know with certainty that there will be a day when God will pay evil what it's worth, you can rest. When you know that God will come in a day and weigh all of, human, all of humanity's actions and come out rightly and, and declare his justice rightly, you can rest. When you know for certain that every man who has taken a life of an innocent child will stand before the perfect judge, you can rest and have hope. In verse 2, this distinction is made clear. He says, but for you, but for you who fear the Lord, it's a whole different type of person, but for you who fear the Lord, your reality is going to be totally different. Two things that I hope you guys hear about your reality if you fear the Lord in this coming day. First, Jesus will make all things right. He will make all things right Again, God shows up as a fire, but not a fire like a burning oven that burns up the wood to ashes. He is going to come as a fire like the sun rising above the horizon. As the sun rises above the horizon, its rays go about the horizon as far as you can even imagine. And in that perfect light, it will uncover every mystery. It will uncover everything that was hidden. It will uncover everything. All that was unknown before that was under the cover of darkness. And not only that, it's going to provide heal, a healing warmth in its righteousness. The healing here is comprehensive, right? It's as far as the sun's rays can go out from its wings. Comprehensive, total healing for the righteous. The beautiful thing here in the New Testament is that this son of righteousness is understood as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. As Jesus Christ rises, there's healing in his wings. In his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. And that's the gospel. Right? In his resurrection, he has destroyed death. And so that when he comes back, he can say to death, no more, and grant us eternal life. His resurrection, his rising, is our healing comprehensively, totally, completely. No more tears, no more pain, no more death. Secondly, for the righteous, our posture towards the coming day, this day of judgment, 
is totally different. What does it say? It says, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I have no idea what that means. But I do know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't sound like some kind of cowering in fear, in paralysis, kind of in the corner of your room. It doesn't sound like a ho-hum, let's shrug it off, let's go about our day type of thing, right? You know what it does sound like? It sounds like an amazing time. It sounds like a happy moment. It sounds like an amazingly freeing moment. It sounds like if you were under long suffering for years and years and years, and you were captive to your sin, and you were in jail, and somebody comes past you and heals you and opens the door to that cell and says, go, you would run out of that, that cell with great joy and great excitement like a calf running out of the stall, whatever that means. That's the reality of God's righteous. We will run out with great joy. The judgment for us is welcomed and celebrated. And so, for the people of Malachi's day, these were some welcome words. The worship, their worship was not in vain, after all, because God was going to be just. He heard them. He would remember them. His judgment will be perfect against all the evildoers, vindicating their worship to be true. Those corrupt priests, they'll be found out. They will come before the perfect judge. Those murderers, those evildoers, those people that are sorcerers, they will stand before God as judge. Not only that, but God will come back to heal the broken. He will come back to lift the head of the oppressed, to, to be healing for the orphaned and the widowed. He will come back to restore his fallen creation to a new reality. Man, that should be hope for every one of us. Semimah wrote, we need to see this thing and how this thing ends. We need to see how all of this that we're experiencing now will end and there will come a day. Jesus will return. On that day, he will gather his treasured possession and in his wings is healing. When we remember that there is a day that's coming, when God will be a perfect judge, that he will show off his justice, it should give you great hope. When you remember that that there is a day coming when God will declare himself to be judge over all of creation, you can stand firm today. If you continue to believe that in that coming day that Jesus will come to make all things right again, then you know, even in this present dark age, when it seems like evil is winning and having victory, you know that victory is only temporary. You know that there's a promise that the serpent will strike his heel, but the coming seed, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will crush his head and have victory. We can have hope in that promise. Jesus' coming judgment should fuel your present worship today. Our hope will rest in and celebrate in that coming day. Seven Mile Road, I pray that we would be that type of people, 
that look forward to the coming day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that often this reality that you are coming and making all things right is uh, such a far off truth. Especially in moments like these. But God, I pray that you would give us hope to know that you are returning. That you are a perfect judge who will make your justice known, whose light will shine in darkness, and who will provide healing in his wings. God, I pray that you would do that for your glory, for our joy, that even today we can stand firm in that coming promise and that we would have hope awaiting that day eagerly. Do that for your people. In your name we pray.